This story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that shot of optimism, yeah, yeah. It's not boring. Not boring is for the optimists. Take a little shot of optimism. Take a little shot of optimism. Just zoom out and take a little shot of optimism. Happy Thursday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. I'm your host, Packy McCormick, and Not Boring Founders is a podcast where we talk to the people who are building the future. Sometimes those people are in the Not Boring Capital portfolio. Sometimes they're just founders that we come across who we think are doing exceptional things. In this case, we have three co-founders of a company called Parcel that is in the Not Boring Capital portfolio. We have Trevor Bacon, Kellen Grenner, and Jason Lurus. When I first met Kellen and Trevor back in 2021, the idea just jumped out to me as one that makes a ton of sense. They let you trade neighborhoods and cities and eventually certain types of properties in certain neighborhoods or properties with certain features in a more liquid way. It's a thesis that I've written about in pieces like the one on Wander or Zillbnb that Real estate really should be more liquid. Often it's the biggest purchase that somebody will make in their life. It can take more than their entire net worth because they go into debt in order to purchase the property. And then once you're in it, you're stuck. Or say, like us, you want to rent, but you do want upside exposure to a neighborhood. I'd love to be long Brooklyn, even though we rent here. Parcel allows you to do that. On Parcel, I could go on and I could go long Brooklyn. I could go short San Francisco. That might be a pair trade that, that I do. And I think actually looking at the numbers, uh, that trade would have worked out pretty well over the past year. But one of the most fascinating things about Parcel is that in order to build the, the trading product, they needed to get a lot of information and a lot of data on what real estate actually costs. The gold standard now is the Case-Shiller Index and it's lagging and it's confusing. So they built up Parcel Labs, a separate piece of the company to aggregate all of that data, pull it together in a way that is real time, fast, and kind of matches the speed of the trading platform. Today, we'll talk about how they do that, how they combine those two things and what the future looks like for Parcel. So without further ado, Please enjoy my conversation with the co-founders of Parcel, Trevor, Kellen, and Jason. Kellen, Trevor, and Jason, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thanks for having us back here. Thanks for having us. So let's just start in the simplest place possible. And it's actually not as simple maybe as it once was. What is Parcel? Parcel is a real estate ecosystem. It has currently two distinct. Uh, divisions under the ecosystem. One is a trading platform that allows you to long or short cities and neighborhoods in the U.S. now and shortly across the world. And what powers the Parcel Protocol is Parcel Labs Data, which is a machine learning, big data, real estate data platform that has pri- price feed for cities and neighborhoods that updates daily. And along with that, we have a bunch of other information and about real estate data that we are commercializing. It's awesome. So that's that piece is definitely an evolution since when we first started talking, when I first invested in Parcel, and it seems like it's going really well. I want to dig into that. First, so I guess from each of you, what are your backgrounds? How did you get here? And where did the idea for Parcel come from? Good question. I'll start as to the idea. So me and Kelly used to work together. We were at a hedge fund, a technology-focused hedge fund, investing in technology stocks. During COVID, I looked over to Kelly and I said, 
There's a ton of real estate volatility. I wish I could just long Miami and short New York right now. He goes and looks to see if there's a way to do it, and there wasn't. And so that's where the idea was born. I went to high school with Jason. I call him up. He's at Microsoft and say, hey, what would it take to get a real-time price feed that we can trade, go long and short? And he said, oh, this is going to be a big effort. It's a huge data science problem. And that was basically the beginning of Parcel, obviously. A lot of value has emerged from the data asset itself. The team has grown immensely, but that's kind of how it started. My background was hedge fund portfolio manager at several hedge funds. And before that, I was at a couple of investment banks. Thanks, Will. How about you, Colin? Yeah, I mean, Trevor already took care of me for the most part. But yeah, background in, in kind of traditional finance, most recently at a hedge fund covering tech hardware and semiconductors, before that on the sell side. So always in like a market role. So this idea was very logical to me. I mean, anyone that's touched real estate in any way knows that liquidity and marginal transaction costs are like the issue. And if there's a way to solve that, like it's, you know, sky's the limit. So. Jason, you're, you left the now AI center of the world to come, come build data products. Give me, give me a little more on your, your background. Yeah, for sure. So as Trevor mentioned, I was at Microsoft. I was focused on AI, specifically this technique called domain adaptation for transformer models, uh, similar to the architectures that, you know, powers chat GPT. And I'd been doing that for a few years at Microsoft. Trevor called me and articulated the problem around getting exposure to residential real estate data. I found the data problem to be particularly interesting because if you could simplify the interface to residential real estate data, the value that you could have for machine learning applications and for developers was exponential and nobody had cracked it. And it was intellectually stimulating problem to me. And I thought we could, I thought we could do it in a, in a truly differentiated way. Uh, so that's what brought me on. To start, so I, I, before this was a company called Breather, we were real estate tech. And the big joke is that like, you know, technology is just decades behind in real estate, despite it being this massive, massive, massive asset class. Why is that? So how I typically describe this is I take a look back in history um, and how did real estate begin? Like how did real estate data really begin? And so, you know, you look back over a hundred years ago where the first transaction was recorded on a, a piece of paper in a specific market. And so you propagate that out and people are recording transactions on pieces of paper and they continue doing this and they're not communicating with one another from one region of the country to the other in regards to what standards they're writing down their information about the housing market in. And then technology comes along. And so these are all independent actors acting on their own volition. And they're choosing different technologies. They're choosing different technologies to digitize their data ecosystem. And then fast forward to where we are today, uh, and you still have this fragmented real estate data ecosystem that has a bunch of different technologies that were used to build us to where we are right now, but still very little communication going on across them. And that's why the real estate data space is so fragmented in its current form. And we know taking a top down, like, cause getting into the weeds of that, you'll, you'll never get anywhere. If you flip the table over and take a top down approach to re re index, re standardize the whole process. And that's how you can create a new foundational layer that is dramatically simpler for folks to build downstream applications for. So I guess, you know, oh, I want to, oh, I want to, I want to add one thing back. I think 
what Rich Barton and Zillow did in the last decade kind of made people aware of what's possible. Like there is a real-time value to my house and therefore I should know it and my neighbor should know his and like that should inform the process. And so I think that's kind of like, I don't know what to compare it to, whether it's like the iPhone or maybe it's the Blackberry. I don't know what, but like it's somewhere on the path towards where we need to be. We're not there yet, but the work that Jason and his team and Parcel Labs are doing, without a doubt, is moving us that in that direction. So that's actually, I mean, the the Zestimate is something that I think people were really, really excited about. And then at some point people were like, wait, actually, like it's not super accurate. And certainly it's not accurate enough to do eye buying on. And so they shut that program down. What was wrong with this estimate and, or what is wrong with this estimate and like what would be different if they were building on parcel labs data yeah great question so my own reflection on this in regards to what i think happened is they were tracking performance at the level of granularity that they needed to real estate is very contextually driven we see it all the time with the current 2023 state with regional divergence you got the west coast going one way you got the east coast going another and there's a million stories within each of those different things. And so when you're looking at machine learning performance at too high of an altitude, it is very easy to gloss over what's happening under the hood. And they were operating down at the, at the, at the site level. In addition to that, I don't think they had a mechanism. And we see this with how often they publish their ZHVI updates and how often does that estimate is updating them. They didn't have a mechanism to adapt to changing market conditions fast enough. They've recently remodeled their Zestimate or the ZHVI to be powered by their quote unquote neural um, Zestimate to try to address some of this, but it's still very lag. And so if you like back into that, that means they're not capturing the comps that regularly. They're not updating the prices that regularly. So you have these compounding factors where you're not looking at performance at a, at a small enough detail. You're not updating the systems fast enough. You're not benchmarking against the things that need to be benchmarked in that time. And then that leads to drift is what happened. They had drift in real world performance relative to their actual like internal development testing. So I remember when I came in, that's been a year ago at this point, when I came into the office, we were talking about all the stuff going on in the data layer underneath. But at the time, that was just an input into the protocol. Explain how kind of the company has evolved since the beginning and then like how you decided to make that decision to have both the protocol and parcel labs. So in order to have the protocol, we needed data. Like to, to the point you mentioned before, the, you know, the, the first vision was like maybe an estimate for Miami, right? Can't do that because of the API call limits. So, and that's what started to get us thinking that we needed to create our own data layer because we would be at the at the whip of, of a different company. And if those policies change or anything happened, we would be out of luck and we don't control our destiny, our own destiny in that sense. So that was the first decision why we need our own data. We get that question a lot. Over time, I think some of the, the, the issues that Jason articulated with respect to real estate data have emerged and we do realize how archaic the current data infrastructure is in real estate. And we're bringing a modern technology stack to real estate. So it was solving our own problems first and then getting and hearing customers asking for better systems, better, more accurate, more real-time, easier access. We have a REST API that rolled out yesterday and it's, it's ongoing this week. That's super simple to access, it's self-service. And then we have a nice, easy enterprise access for 
for bigger companies. So it was solving our own problems and then recognizing that other people probably have similar problems. And now we're building out the go-to-market for that. It's a good opportunity. It, it was publishing it was publishing the insights too, because when like some of the like the best quality of inbounds that we started getting were when Jason and team started publishing or predicting the K Schiller index two months before it would report within like you know, 30, 40 basis points of what they ended up reporting. And everyone's like, well, there are two months missing there. We're not going off the right stuff right now. Yeah, that's that's pretty incredible. If you look at Basel, like every day we're updating the neighborhood prices, which is which is wild. How does it work? Like how does the protocol side of things work? Explain the Oracle, explain how like what people are trading against and maybe just how the protocol works a little bit and then how the data feeds in there. Yeah, Kellen, do you want to go or I can go? I'll kick it off. Yeah. So every, you're right, Packy, every day, Parcel Labs publishes these parcel price feeds, right? And they have, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, the capabilities, there's, you know, thousands, if not at this point, tens of thousands of different, you know, neighborhood or city level endpoints that are, parcel, you know, up daily updating parcel price feeds. Six of them to start are fed through a custom imp implementation of a PIP Oracle parcel. The protocol is built on top of Solana to start and that oracle validates the price every day within you know some rough range let's call it sometime in the morning and then that up that reflects on the part of parcel protocol so the price that anyone would get if they were to enter a trade long or short after that update is now this new price right so like miami i think right now is creating it 502.50 per square foot that represents the median square foot within the boundaries that are determined to be miami and then someone can go in and, and basically place a long or short bet on that price. And structurally how it works on the blockchain side, there's a little bit of a novel element here because if you think about what has been created, you know, there's no underlying asset here. You're trading an index price. So there needs to be some sort of a liquidity environment, two-sided liquidity around that price. And our blockchain team, David, who's a sensational engineer, kind of took, you know, looked around the ecosystem. We made, did a ton of iteration based on like, a, you know, the first few versions that, that we put together as a development team and ultimately took the best of all worlds here and created this thing where everyone who participates long, short or neutral, you can, you can be like a neutral pro liquidity provider and effectively be a market maker. Everyone's a liquidity provider. So like you deposit USDC, you're either long, short or neutral, and you now have an interest in this pool. And it's reflected in your phantom wallet as a liquidity token, which has an exchange rate. That exchange rate is a function of recognized gains and losses and the amount of USDC in the pool relative to that, those recognized gains and losses. And what's really cool about that is that, you know, this is like a perpetual prediction model, right? You know, it, it, every day this price updates, you don't have, you know, there's no expiration date, there's no strike price, but every day you can come in and out of this pool at that price and recognize gains and losses, and it's fully solvent. There's no margin, there's no credit risk. The pool is designed by nature to be fully solvent uh, in all states. And it's about, let's, what do we say? Like a month, month and a week or two in, and it's performing as expected. There's actually been some enhancements made to kind of, you know, pull back some, some pretty restrictive elements of this that, that, you know, to more closely match the volatility profile of real estate, which is like massively enhanced the user experience. So we're like iterating to create this like a really good product and people are trading it. I think just yesterday, someone put on like a pretty massive short in Miami. We were all like, you were like, Whoa, like, holy, wow. That, that's awesome. Miami is getting wrecked, by the way. Really? Just, well, yeah. 
So there's, I was actually going to ask when you said earlier that you wanted to put on the long Miami short New York trade, how that'd be performing right now. But even before that, so the thing that you just said, Kellen, about the prediction piece, I think is really, really interesting, right? Because like, unlike people getting excited about Brooklyn and then going and buying a townhouse in Brooklyn, and that actually moves the price, this is kind of like the synthetic layer on top. And so it shouldn't impact the underlying, which means it's like kind of pure from a prediction point of view. Have the people who trade on platform or, or invest on the platform been good predictors of where things are moving? Are people up or down overall? I mean, I guess there's somebody on each side of the trade, but how would you say people are at, at predicting markets? And is there like a time frame at which you think you know demand will actually be a good predictor of, of where markets are moving? Well, there's there's a, I, a the short answer is it's too early. There's just not enough recognized gains and losses. But there's the beauty of this is that there's a perfect way for you, Packy, to monitor that. You can go to app.parcel.co, click into the liquidity pool and see what the exchange rate is on the token. If it's low, there's been a lot of recognized gains. If it's high, there's been a lot of rec recognized losses. Right now, it's just chilling around one. So roughly even, no blood, but that's how you can keep track. Uh, two days, it, as Kellen said, it's early, but it, it's, le it's, it's more mixed than you, you think. Decent amount of wrong side trades. And do people mostly come in, just looking at the behavior of, of people so far, do they mostly come in and just say, look, I'm long Brooklyn, or do they come in and pair trade? Do they come in and buy everything? Like what's the most common behavior of somebody trading on the app? It, so again, it's early. So we're just, we're, we don't have like a true profile to date. I think now it's, it's kind of getting people. So we have a novel product, novel market, making a market, and it's a novel architecture. So kind of like the perpetual prediction market. So. People are kind of testing, understanding it. We've seen some pair trading. I, you can see this evolving into a way in which if you have a, a hedge fund, you could create like a, a, a basically like a real estate trading hedge fund where you try to generate alpha versus the cities. We're looking into having like a broader parcel, like a USA parcel, which would serve as the benchmarks. I try to generate alpha above the S&P 500. This would be very similar. So you could short the USA, you know, get the true idiosyncratic exposure of whatever market that you want, Miami, San Francisco, you know, long or short, and then you can kind of create more institutionalized products like that. How do you see then the, the trader rollout? Maybe look out over the next couple of years, starting small, when do the institutions come in? Like what needs to be in place for that to happen? How do you see all of that evolving? I'll kick off and then Kellen has some good ideas on the institution side. So right now it's understanding customer pain points and addressing those in a small contained environment. We launched NFT about a year ago and last week we're now outside of that community. So we're now in new territory, which is great. We got a new pool of people. We have new feedback, new ideas, which is awesome. We'll continue to do that, roll out to more people, ungate as we see more geographies, roll out new parcels too, more parcel markets we're exploring. We have one in the hopper that is overseas, unsure when we're gonna roll that out. I mentioned the USA one and then a couple others. So we're looking to get up to 10 in, in pretty short order. And then just learn how to fill those pools, you know, generate trading demand. And then once we start to like kind of rinse and repeat that process, we'll understand how to efficiently roll out products. Kellen, and, and then institutional can follow that. Yeah, I would just maybe just add, like, what's happening right now is is that liquidity is bootstrapping from zero. And it's people coming in, poking around, and be like, what's going on here? You know, how does this thing work? I'll, I'll put on, like, a little test position and see what happens. Uh, and I think we're in that phase where people are like, oh, like, this is pretty sweet. You know, someone puts on a, 
10x long or 10x short Miami, 400 bucks, I'll wake up overnight, they're off 5%. Oh, like that's pretty sweet. So then from there, you know, you, you build liquidity, more users come in, right? You're kind of at this point, you know, at the mercy of like who has a Solana wallet, who has assets on chain, right? Like that's, we've narrowed down the group a little bit. Then you expand, you expand further. At some point you reach what, what I would call like a tipping point in scale. And then that's when institutions can start to underwrite this, right? It, it's like, how efficient is this? How, how liquid is this market? What, you know, they think in bid ask terms, right? Like how tight are the spreads? We, it's presented in a different way through this, you know, this decentralized software, but it's the same concept and it's all about sufficient liquidity. I can't really say when that point is in terms of users, we're probably talking about like hundreds of thousands, millions of users, and then institutions are, are pretty interested, but like the end state is, you know, structured products, major, you know, name brand, grad by institutions offering their user base a way to hedge risk in their largest assets, which is their home, a way to, you know, create pair trades if they're thinking about moving, a way for, you know, younger folks to basically save for a down payment on a home where they get the exact exposure they're looking for that they cannot get anywhere else. And like, that's where it's pretty sweet. You can think, you can see how it becomes like a established, really well established. Yeah, I mean, I remember that from our first conversation talking about the fact that it's this huge asset. It's the largest asset that most people who own a home actually own and it's just kind of sitting out there there's like nothing you can do to hedge it there's you're just hoping that the price of your home goes up over time and appreciates and that you end up in a better spot than before and so it seems like this product that does make sense for a mass audience over time but i guess yeah in the short term it's all about making sure the product works and then providing liquidity in the right in the right places i mean in in this country we've created like the american dream around government subsidized 5x leverage to buy this massive, you know, hard asset, right? Like that's a pretty sweet deal. And a lot of people have built like nest eggs off of that. But what we don't have is, so two problems now. One, you know, through all sorts of different reasons, you know, demographic stuff, interest rate policy, you know, years and years of things building up, the barriers to entry have gotten like ridiculous, right? So, I mean, that's like a fundamental problem right now. There's a certain age threshold and underneath it, it's just really hard to come up with that down payment and like even get started. And then two, you know, for the people that are already there, they're perpetuating the problem. We have a huge supply problem in, in, in terms of like houses on market because these people locked in incredible rates. They don't want to move. They're in retirement age. And so they're like, well, I'm not going to sell this thing. And right now we're like stuck. We're in mud. And it's, it's perpetuating these issues, which are like systemic problems. And, you know, liquidity improves everything always. So that's the thesis. Speaking of liquidity, there's, I guess, a trade-off question here, right? Like where you have the data, I'm sure, on most markets in the U.S., you have the price feed, it sounds like overseas in some places, but you can't just automatically overnight say, great, all penthouses in Brooklyn are now online as, as an asset class. Is that just a liquidity problem? And like, how do you think about attracting people by having enough assets versus having enough liquidity for each asset? How do you get that balance right? Well, the beauty, Packy, of this product is that you could do that. It's just like, is there, you know, there's no, you know, you'd be, Packy would be the first one in that pool, which maybe you're okay with, right? You're going to have to take some risks to do that. You might have to pay like a skew fee. You're going to move the market a certain way. But like, if you want to put that trade on, you could. Now, what needs to happen is that the development company, Parcel, needs to offer that Parcel price feed through the Oracle and establish the pool. But once that happened, it's a market now. So like, that's the cool part. You can start from wherever you want. I'll let Trevor might have. 
Yeah, you you basically put a bid out and someone needs to take the other side <clears throat> in the illiquid. But I would think of it, I would think of it much like the QQQ or the NASDAQ. You have the the top, the the big hitters. It's like the main, that's where the majority of trading happens in the top 10 or 15 or 20. And then as you get to the tail, there's just less demand or interest. And I think you could view the major cities and metros as in that, globally, in that type of, type of fashion. We, we haven't optimized the exact number yet because different demographics or different ge- geographical customer profiles will, will tell us more as to which cities, uh, cities are, are, are hotter than others or more demand. I'd chime in um, uh, on the data component in the sense that this was always a vision of ours was being able to create thousands, hundreds of thousands of different tradable markets. And to to slowly move away from how we typically think about, you know, space and geography, you know, right now we have you know, Brooklyn and Manhattan, but we designed the data system such that you could express abstract notions of places such as I want all single family residences built before 1980, looking at a mountain around the world and be able to pool those properties together and then getting just those properties AVM updates on a daily basis to understand what the price movement is for those areas. And this was one of the reasons, you know, another reason why we had to build the data ecosystem ourselves, because there is no global standard for residential real estate. And we're creating the global standard for residential real estate to hyperscale applications like parcel trading protocol and many other real estate applications in the data ecosystem. So will that be limited by my imagination at some point, I could be like, look, I think that anything that I actually think that global warming is overhyped. And so I'm going to buy a bunch of oceanfront properties and I'm going to short the heartlands like, and I can come up with that idea eventually over time and say like, this is the portfolio that I want to be able to build. Or is this stuff that you and people who build on top of parcel labs and then build on top of the protocol over time will be able to define. And then I can come in and, and just decide to, to buy or not. I mean, the grand vision here is what you described. Like, I want to get long vacation towns short where everyone moved during COVID. Like, or maybe those things are the same thing. I want to get long ski towns, short beach, you know, beach towns. I'm like a winter person. You know, like the sky is the limit to some to some degree. You know, what what's really interesting about what Jason's doing and kind of like the, the customer pipeline that that Labs has is that, you know, if you create this global standard for residential real estate. There, there's a lot of smart people out there. Like we're constrained by our brain power and that of our team, which is incredible. Like I bet on it all day, but like there's another seven something billion people out there that might have a better idea. If we create this data, you know, if Parcel Labs is spitting out this data, someone's going to tap into this and create something that we're not even thinking of and pay for the API calls. So like, we're happy. Yeah, exactly. You could have a insurance company carve out a parcel that's tradable on the protocol and they just take the other side and that's like the insurance right? like there's a bunch of uh, kind of long tail uh, insurance applications that could happen our grand vision we have an api that people can develop off of and we have a protocol that people trade off of right you collect on both you try to drive usage in both we don't have to create all of it we want to enable developers to create on top of the, the only other thing I added to that is it makes it very straightforward in regards to what the mission is for Parcel Labs. We're not developing the applications themselves. We're creating the best developer experience out there 
to access standardized residential real estate data. And it turns out there's a lot of folks that need daily updating residential real estate data. If you think about lead gen and integrating with automation marketing platforms, they want to know when somebody's likely to move. They want to know where somebody's house equity is relative to when they originally purchased it. So they can be first in line in regards to getting in front of that customer before a pivotal moment in their life. And there's a bunch of applications that are being developed now that are really in that six months prior to a status change of a home that weren't previously accessible before, like a, having a managed company rent your, your property for you. So you can get out of the loop on that. You can go move somewhere else. A company will come in and rent it for you, or they'll buy it from you. And then you're paying rent back to them. You don't have to move. And then obviously your, your typical ways of getting, you know, HELOCs and, and cash out refinancing, all of these are applications for a daily updating system because it's hyper-competitive when folks, when a user, a homeowner is getting into that period where they're about to do a status change on a huge move. When you're thinking about building parcel labs and building trust in the data so that people can take out loans or do some of the transactions that you're just talking about, these like huge financial transactions, as you're talking to potential partners and people building on top, like what are the things that you need to show them to get trust or to be kind of a standard that meets the bar for people to engage in million dollar kind of financial transactions? Yeah, great question. Fortunately, in my opinion, the, the, the bar is extremely low in the residential real estate space. So I'd say, you know, just reflecting back on my time at Microsoft, one of the biggest advantages in the AI and open source space is the ability to work on top of others. And this included publishing your research rigorously and having it QA'd and validated by other leaders in that space. And then using information and techniques from other domains outside of whatever it might be. So I, I practiced natural language processing. We would leverage techniques from computer vision, psychology, all over the place. As you're mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, how the real estate technology ecosystem is decades behind, so is the mindset in regards to the approach for evolving the real estate space. So fortunately, we're not in the business of the, you know, having skin in the game if the market goes one way or the other. We're in the business of being as transparent as possible and building a community of technologists that can help evolve the real estate ecosystem all up. And we're going to be putting everything just straight out. How we developed our auto valuation model, what our performance is down to a unit level and getting that regional context in regards to how we're doing in these various areas. And over time, that builds trust. People can poke into our paper. People can build on top of our paper. People can build on top of our code or poke into our code. The closest thing you have today is the Case-Shiller Index, which is lagged by two months. And the, uh, the methodology is obscure. Nobody can recreate it. So, and I think they even have a committee that manually goes through and is like, eh, you know, we're going to get this unit this month because why not? Uh, and so that's the floor uh, in the residential real estate space. I'm confident that we're going to be able to show how it should be and how it will be going forward. The fun thing about being kind of the platform of the API is it as Kellen said, you can tap into all of the brains in the world to figure out what to build on top. But each of you, if you got fired from Parcel today, if you fired yourselves and had to go build something using Parcel Labs API, what would each of you build? These generative models for, for natural language processing. We have ChatGPT. Google just released their own system. Google flopped a little bit in one of their ads when it pulled up an incorrect piece of information. I think it was about the solar system or the history of the solar system. 
And so what is the pitfalls of these models? They are not able to integrate facts in a timely basis. So how does Parcel Labs augment that? Well, we have all the facts in regards to what's happening with the residential real estate space. So then you modify the prompts on the inputs to these generative models such that they can leverage the Parcel Labs real-time data about local housing markets, how they write content on behalf of whoever using those facts, contextually oriented towards those markets, and you've just created a hyperscale content generation system that is able to be done in hundreds of different languages around the clock. And so we built this over the last 48 hours, have gotten it down to integrating our pricing for dynamic charting, the linking, the way that the content's done, and we'll get much better at this in regards to the tone and the actual structure and building out the HTML, but it tethers right into the Parcel Labs API every day of hitting it. It understands what the price per square foot is, what's the distribution of transactions, what's the demographics of those areas as of that day, and then it's able to build content reference around that. That's what I would build. But we did it, so I would continue building it. He, he showed it to me this morning, and I was like, oh, my God. This is like what, you, you know, you think about it, you're like, well, what can we do with Chapit TPT? You know, we can write some marketing stuff. That's pretty cool. Like, and then but if you, you could automate these market updates for every market that anyone in the world cares about with like very low overhead and they get an update every morning. Like that's actually valuable. So I was pretty impressed. My answer, you know, we worked at a hedge fund. So markets background, there's a couple of people in Jason's pipeline or in parcel labs pipeline that, that have, that are using this data to back into reconstruct, you know, competitor P and L's and like gain those type of insights. I would use it to start like building insane, you know, predictive models of publicly traded companies and back into their P&L and put some trades on. <laughs> I would create a platform where you could trade these prices. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would actually, if, if not that, then I would, uh, I would, I would use it as a startup and iBuyer just with, with better information. Wow. What would you, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've been obsessed with, with Zillow for a while. I've written about open door, which makes me look like an idiot now, but we'll see. If you were starting an iBuyer today with this data, what would you do differently than everybody is that? It seems like something that needs to happen and like that should obviously happen and is so hard to get the unit economics to work. So what would you do? We just have the movement patterns and we have daily price updates for every everywhere in the country. So and we have a, a differentiated comps model such that we can predict when, uh, areas will, like we know the trends that started acceleration in housing, price appreciation or, or declines. And then we just refine that model to, to start to, to hop onto that acceleration. And what I'd add to this is we're in a great position because what do folks currently use to try to do this? They use public county records. By the time a transaction gets logged into the public county records, two weeks to six plus months have already transpired. So if you're trying to keep up with how the market's moving, that's problematic. We fill that gap with what's happening on market today. And then we're tracking the different categorizations of investor profile. So you have this dynamic window, depending on what market you're in, that could be two weeks to six plus months, or you have a lead time over everybody else. And you can use that to your advantage in a significant way. And we already have partners of parts of labs that are doing exactly that. I think 
what all I want to add here is that Trevor would be way better equipped leveraging Parcel Labs data, and that would give him a fighting chance. But unless he knows something about you know monetary policy and what the Fed is going to do with interest rates, I don't see that margin profile working out. So good luck. I don't know if I'm going to see that one. <laughs> what do you mean? You're doing it. They're not doing it together. No, that that is that's true. I mean, like how much when you're looking at that these markets, you have predictive models of what might happen in a, a particular market. Is that relative to other markets, or is there something in like the latent space happening here that like is also maybe guessing what's happening with rates? Like how how good are the predictive models that, that you'd be doing this off of in this hypothetical scenario? I'll let Jason explain it, but this comps model that he he's shown me several times now. It's, you know, you're not getting comps from your neighborhood. You're getting comps based on hundreds of different profile items that, that match, you know, somewhat, somewhat closely with, you know, if this house that I'm looking at is in Carlsbad, California, it's pulling from somewhere in Boston, somewhere in Chicago, like the, all of these things while also contextualizing this idiosyncratic thing that's happening in Carlsbad with the market, while also capturing that, like, you know, the high level market level stuff, such as the interest rate policies impact on mortgages like that feeds through no matter what. So it, it's just like, are, how real time are you at that point? I'll let Jason dive into the, the nuance. From, from a high level, I would, I would, I would just add with respect, currently there's no macro indicators. The, the market, you know, the uh, uh, asset is what someone will pay for it. Current info on market is, is basically, uh, it, it, it's already uh, displayed in what people are asking for the the house, and it, that contemplates macro in it already. Yeah. To double compound that would be overly prudent. Yep, makes total sense. I mean, I could give a super long winded discussion on our approach to this. Um, it depends on how how much time we want to give to the discussion of the machine learning topic. I think it's super interesting because it it just shows kind of like all the things that go into pricing and valuing this thing that all of us are probably sitting in right now or will be at some point today. Tell me what you've learned building this thing. What are the things that matters? How does it work? Like, I think that's worth a couple minutes of discussion. Heck yeah. I, I was hoping you'd say that. All right. So to take a couple steps back um, and to understand what we're doing at Parcel Labs, the objective is to index every property on the planet. In the U.S., there's okay real estate data. In France, there's okay real estate data. In Canada, there's okay real estate data. However, the further away you get from developed nations, the harder that problem is going to be and the more you're going to have to lean on other techniques to do this. So I've said all this in that we designed our model to only incorporate very basic information about a unit. Square footage, which can be imputed accurately from satellite imagery number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, and the location, the latitude and longitude, which can also be imputed from satellite imagery. And so using just that as our inputs to the model, we needed a way to outperform existing auto valuation models on the market that use dozens of different variables that have users going in there and typing in the information, which causes all sorts of problems in and of itself, that you're uploading photos, doing all this stuff. We, that's not scalable, that's not reliable, we couldn't count on that, especially globally. So we truncated the inputs and then we took a look in regards to what are some other domains that we could get inspiration from in regards to create that, that performance that we're not going to get from feeding it dozens of variables. And so, you know, my background was in natural language processing 
And we took a heavy look there in regards to these transformer models. And what were they trying to accomplish? These transformer models were taking arbitrary text. I mean, text, there's context in everything with text. I mean, you and I could say the same thing 500 different ways, but you need a way to model that in the same type of way. And it's very similar to real estate in the sense that context of space and geography is everything. And you need a way to train globally while leveraging the best information that you can on the ground. So we've reformulated the NLP problems that have been, you know, crushing it over the last couple of years with, you know, the generative chat and QA systems and, you know, all sorts of different elements and um, how text is handled uh, towards the real estate domain. And then we use that to refer to, to, we go through that training protocol, leveraging all the information that we have to construct these representations of every property that we have access to. Then every single day, we run a algorithm that goes and integrates basic business logic. Like, hey, we only want comps that are sold within the last three months so we can prioritize recency, which by the way, this is customizable for users. If you had a different application, it's like, no, we, we want 12 months, but we want to prioritize more similar units. And so every day we're going through, we're calculating, all right, over the last three months, here's this unit. What are the most similar homes to this unit that, that meet this business criteria of, you know, three months, X, Y, Z. And then those are inputs to our AVM model. So we have these representations of each of those properties that incorporates information about on the ground geography and geospatial characteristics and points of interest, in addition to these basic characteristics of the units. And then that's how we get a price prediction for both on market and off market. Where it gets really exciting and where, you know, I, where I think the biggest evidence is in regards to how our technique is valuable is for off-market predictions. The best we can find, because it is opaque in regards to what people publish, the best we can find performance data on off-market predictions in half. And then for on-market, we outperform as well. But you have to keep in mind for the on-market, they have the user going in there with the photos and all these various things, and we're still outperforming those. But in the off-market scenario where they don't have all the data that they need for the on-market, we cut performance in half. Because we truncated the problem, we will bring state-of-the-art U.S. auto valuation model technology to France, to Canada, to Singapore, and every country that we're in because we designed it from the ground up to do that. Can you see inside the black box? Like, What are the, the things that matter the most if you like if we're looking across the world the things that matter the most to kind of the changes in home valuations yeah that's a great question so I, i'd like to think of this as it's when you're it, you got to take a like a look at the dash of like how people go through this they're like all right we're going to sell a home then they go look at the comp they go take a look at what the, were the sales prices of the homes. And that anchors that person to a price point based on those comps. So if you nail the comps, you're starting to get closer towards how folks are approaching this problem. And then if you outperform the comps, then you get better because then, then you're, you're, the deltas that occur because of use comps in, in the real world. You know, I'd say, you know, some of the biggest characteristics that we see from the way that the comps are done is streets are bit like, there's patterns to how areas are built out. And so a development might 
they architected for a street and they're using the same type of material on that street. And then they may have built another segment, you know, three miles down the road with similar units at that same period of time. And so now those comps, because they built it in the same period with the same types of materials are more relevant to one another. We actually saw this in Chicago. What we did is on the, on the x-axis was the age of the homes and on the y-axis was the price per square foot. So then you could see, hey, my home's 50 years old. This is what I might be able to expect if I were to sell it right now, given these market conditions. And between, I think it was like 18 years and 22 years, there's this dip in the price per square foot. And it turns out that they had been using this material during construction during that period that wasn't favorable to the Chicago climate. So people were having to rebuild these homes as a direct result of that. And so it's these types of idiosyncratic things that you need to get as close to picking up as possible. And I think that's where we've made the biggest strides in being able to do so, picking up those very specific things that require really like on the ground experts that are like really keeping up with, this isn't your typical realtor that's going to know that. Like they really need to be keeping up with the market to understand those issues. Yeah, that's, that's unbelievable. Zooming back out a little bit and into the future, one of my favorite questions to ask is just kind of like, so what? So like, what does the world look like in a decade if you're wildly successful at Parcel? That's Parcel Labs, that's Parcel Protocol. What changes? Why is it important to have this data and to make real estate more liquid? I think on both sides, under the ecosystem, as I mentioned earlier, the grand vision is to have a new, really liquid market for real estate, and then a lot of applications built on the ABS. So the numbers here are trillions of dollars in liquidity traded across the world in Hong Kong, Paris, Canada, US markets. Uh, and on top of that, it's not just long short markets, it's insurance products, structured products, savings products, everything that you in a mature market can be built upon this asset class with liquidity. And then with respect to Parcel Labs, it's thousands and thousands of consumer applications to allow more people to access real estate for whatever use case they, they imagine, really. So if you guys want to add to that. And enterprise-grade insights. So, you know, there's a lot of room for enterprises to plug into this too and, and optimize their business. A weird one here, but at some point, will it make sense to own a home, like to lock yourself into owning a home if you can access the same exposure, but in a much more liquid way? Or will the liquidity be on like the hedging that side? Like to me, I'd much rather, if I want to go long Brooklyn, go long Brooklyn, be able to get out and do something else if, if things change. Do you see? I, mean, to, I think, to, I think to, for this generation, I, I think home ownership is arguably... It, depending on, especially now with higher rates, like your break even is a lot higher. So, uh, and then taxes, it's unclear how, not so clear that the investment is once what it was, given uh, where markets are. And just knowing that Gen Z and, you know, the younger generation like flexibility, they like mobility and don't want to lock in to something so long-term, like a 30-year mortgage uh, uh, provides that flexibility. So, um TBD on that. I mean, we're it, like we're at a breaking point, no matter what, Packy. So, like, the way I see this product is like, what would I do? 
you know, I'm renting now and I've thought about buying, but like, that's a super specific decision. Uh, easy for me to say, like, I don't have kids, right? Like I know you guys, it's different for you guys. Right. But like it, for me, it's like, why wouldn't I build a portfolio the same way I would build a portfolio of stocks, right? Of all the places that I think are the best investments around the country and then just rent wherever I'm living, you know, like people are going to rent no matter, you know, the way things are going to Trevor's point on rates to the supply shortage, people are going to rent no matter what. That's like a way more attractive, way more efficient way to do things. Like I know everyone has their own take here. And like for some people that won't be what makes the most sense, but that's just my, like, that's how I see it. And if that's true, this should, re you know, relieve pressure on the demand side, which will then, e you know, create an equilibrium in the market or at least like help, you know, normalize things. And then, you know, that's creating efficiency. That's tightening the spread, which is what we were talking about on the protocol side. And like, that's how you, you know, add value to society really. Yeah. And if you want to lay down roots somewhere, you go do that and you buy a house and, and make the changes that you want. Like, I think if we bought a house, 90% of the reason is not financial. It's because we want to like knock down a wall or make changes to the place. But then we could also years. get liquidity by going short the neighborhood. And then I'd have that money to invest in other things. Bingo. I love it. <laughs> no, you just, you, you walked it off yourself. <laughs> you had the, you had the moment. Yeah. Uh, now before we stop, we can edit all the, like the in-between parts but is there anything that we haven't hit that we should hit i think we got through pretty much everything i mean the big thing from here is like how do you open up how do you increase liquidity open up this trade on the trading side open up this product to more people establish trust close you know close the spreads create efficiency make it an institutional product then there's trillions of dollars that's the hard part that's the execution stage that we're in right now and some days you wake up and you're like oh my god like i'm fighting for it other days you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm just walking up the hill. Like, this is easy. But like, that's the startup experience. I don't think I'm like breaking any ground there. And then I, I don't want to speak for Jason, but like it, creating that developer experience, a lot of groundwork's been laid. There's a lot of infrastructure that the, and like by design, right? Like this was created to, you know, create a best in class experience that is scalable. And therefore it's already light years ahead of everything else that's available. And now it's like seeing what people do with this, seeing the reaction that they have when they plug into it, you know, the, like there's people that are like, oh my God, like, how did I not know about this? And we're, it's only been around for what, like a couple months. So like, just think of all the people that are coming next. And then you get into the enterprises who are also having that moment. They're like, this is just way better than the thing that we have. And it's telling us things that we really need to know about like this super important part of our business and like, where do we sign? So it, like, that's exciting. Incredible. Where, you know, if you're, I guess I'll ask for the few different categories. If you're a person who wants to go start trading on the protocol now that it's opened up, where can you go to start going long Brooklyn, which is what I would do, not financial advice? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. So it's app, app.parcel, P-A-R-C-L.co.co. There is, like I said, kind of opening in phases. So it's still kind of gated to certain communities. There's also some regional restrictions including the U.S. at this moment, working extremely hard to change that. Um, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for the U.S. to lead from the front on, you know, in, you know, innovate in general. And I think that that opportunity is being passed up at the moment. And hopefully that, that shifts because you're seeing a lot of other jurisdictions around the world get really aggressive in the, you know, what this technology can do, specifically to crypto and Web3. I mean, you've, you've talked about this forever and literally on my board right there where i have my ideas for posts i have america and the innovators dilemma and it's like it I, i'm gonna write this at some point but 
it does feel a little bit like too comfortable trying to limit downside versus, you know, lean into the next thing. It, it does feel like a nation level kind of innovator slumma thing on this and other topics, yeah. but completely agree. Yeah, the, the, like the challenge here is it makes sense, right? Like the, the there's a, it's, it's a new financial like ecosystem and that comes with a lot of nonsense and it's cyclical and you have these booms and busts and everything moved at warp speed. And like, here we are, FTX is gone. There's, you know, class action lawsuits everywhere. Like, okay, that's where we are today. But there is a path forward where the utility of this, I know that you got, I forget who it was with that debate that you got to do like, what is what three like actually do? I mean, this is a pretty damn good use case. Like you can't do this anywhere else. So you're starting to see more of those things emerge. So like, onboarding people, putting in the right like frameworks to protect consumers, you know, having, you know, doing things the right way. Like these are all like fundamental things. And I think there's a lot of people that, that did not play the game that way that are now gone. So they're gone. And now the real people, the serious people can get back to work. And like, that's the way things are going. And, you know, I, I think about this a lot. Like I, I just implore the people that are in the power to like make these decisions to take the lead here because we're going to keep working. We would love some certainty, but like, we're going to keep going no matter what, because we think that this has value to society and like, this will benefit, you know, consumers, particularly in America over the next, you know, several years. So like, just let us cook, you know, like, please. And have the conversation with, with you guys, right? Like, I mean, I think that's a big sure. piece of this too, is that I think regulators and entrepreneurs building should, should be probably more engaged in, in conversation here. So if you're a regulator listening to this show, one, I'm sorry, but two, uh, come you know, DM me and, and I'll introduce you to Jason, Kellen, and Trevor. Jason, on the on the API side, where can people find you? Parcelabs.com. You don't have to talk to me. You don't have to talk to anybody on the team. You can sign up, get your API key, and then start ripping it. It is fun to talk to you guys, though. So if you want to talk to them, please go ahead and do it. I had a blast doing this, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for letting me join you on this parcel journey. Really excited to see what you guys are cooking up. Thanks, Pat. Thanks a lot, Pat. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, brother.